The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. We're going to be reading out of Leviticus 19. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find that on page 91. We're going to read the first two verses and then jump down to verse 19, or I'm sorry, verse 9, and read through verse 18. So once you found that, if you would please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word, that would be excellent. The Word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now jump down to verse 9, please. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as you can see, we find ourselves here in Leviticus 19. Our time in the book of Leviticus is rapidly drawing to a close. Uh, Lord willing, we should just have three more weeks in Leviticus where we'll combine chapters 21 and 22 together. Then we'll combine chapters 23, 24, 25 together, and then 26 and 27, and then we'll be done. And then what we're going to do is transition into a gospel. It's been a while since we've been in a gospel, and what we're going to do is transition to the uh, gospel of Luke, and we're going to camp there for a little while as we turn to study the life of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So any prayer for that, just with the preparations of getting ready to dive into a new book, are always welcome as well. If you remember what I said last week, when you turn into chapter 17, really through the end of Leviticus, basically the back half of Leviticus, it's often known as this, the holiness code. And what Yahweh is doing is he is helping us to see the extreme practicality of what being holy like him looks like. And one of the most extremely concrete, tangibly practical chapters in the book of Leviticus is the book that lies in front of, or the, the chapter that lies in front of you right now, chapter 19. And what we're going to see this morning, if you wanted to put a sermon title on this chapter, Leviticus 19, you could say it's uh, holiness through love, 
because of this main idea that Yahweh's holy people, we are a people made holy by him, by grace, we are his holy people. Yahweh's holy people are to live out these holy lives, practical ways, seen ways, ways that can be observed, specifically, as it says there in verse 18, in love that we show to our neighbors. So what Leviticus 19 is going to do is help maybe bridge the gap for some of us when it comes to what the Bible means when we talk about being holy. This idea of holiness. For many of us, it's just sort of the ethereal thought, that thing out there that I'm really not sure I want to be. I don't want to be that legalistic, snooty, holier-than-thou, holy Joe, or whatever kind of phraseology that might be laid at your free. Oh, they just think they're better than everyone else. Well, they're just holier than everyone else, right? We use that language in a pejorative kind of way. But the scriptures actually say to be holy is actually what it means to be a redeemed man, a redeemed woman, someone who knows salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this mean to be holy and the scriptures in front of us are going to connect holiness and love together and show us that holiness works itself out in some of the most incredibly practical ways. And that is what the Bible says love looks like. And it's to be shown to our neighbors. Like not necessarily Joe and Susie right north of you or south of you in the address around you, but as we've talked about, your neighbors in your workplace, your neighbors who are your family, your neighbors who are your co-workers or your friends or in those places of recreation or restoration in our city, these are our neighbors. So how do we walk in holiness towards them? That's what we're going to find this morning. So let's pray, then we're going to dive into chapter 19, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us this morning. So let's pray. Father, we recognize we need to hear from you. You're the one speaking in this, in this chapter. And you call all the congregation of Israel to hear because holiness applies to everyone who knows you as Redeemer, as Savior, as Lord. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm asking that, Father, you would grant a full-blown demonstration of the Spirit. A full-blown demonstration of His power so that my speech and my message as they land on us this morning, it just wouldn't simply be just, yeah, just those plausible words of wisdom. Just those, you know, nice little sayings that get us through in life found here in Leviticus 19. That's, that's not what I'm asking for. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you demonstrate what it looks like to walk by faith in such a way so that as the Spirit moves through the preaching of the Word, we would walk out of here changed. We'd walk out of here truly looking more like Christ so that we might go into a world that needs to see a bunch of miniature Christs, Christians, Christians, imaging, mirroring, living, talking, eating, sleeping, working, relating 
like Jesus would so people can see him. Lord, do this for your name's sake. Do this for your glory. It's in the name of King Jesus, I pray. Amen. If you would do this, if your Bible is open, it should be open to Leviticus chapter 19. But if you would just scan your eyes down to the very end of chapter 20, what you will see there are two verses I want to draw your attention to. In Leviticus, chapters 18, 19, and 20 are like a little section together. 19 is the middle verse. 18 and 20 are orbiting around the epicenter of this call to be holy as Yahweh is holy. But you see a little bit of insight of what this means through two verses at the end of chapter 20. So at the end of chapter 20, Leviticus 20, scan down to verse 24. And at the end of verse 24, you see this. I am the Lord your God who has, notice the language here, separated you from the peoples. Scan down two more verses, so you're now in verse 26 of Leviticus 20, and notice he's going, going to repeat the similar kind of idea. Verse 26 says, you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have, here's that language again, separated you from the peoples so that you should be mine. So what we learn from at least two verses like this, 24 and 26, is that to be holy is to be set apart. To be set apart is to be holy. When you are reading through the scriptures and you come to a verse like verse 2 in Leviticus 19 and it says something like, you shall be holy to me, what the scriptures are saying, what Yahweh is saying to his redeemed people is this, you have been and you shall be set apart to me. You once were a part of a people who lived like this, thought like this, acted like this, but I've saved you. You're no longer a part of that kingdom. You're no longer a part of that to that realm, that domain. You're mine. You're different now. I've separated you out of that and set you apart to something different. Now, for Christians, when we go into the New Testament, what this means is that in Christ, we have been set apart from something, and we've been set apart to something. We've been set apart from sin. Sin no longer identifies us. We've been set apart from death. Spiritual death is not what we know. We've been set apart from spiritual darkness. We've been set apart from Satan's bad news kingdom. And we've been set apart to the exact opposite of all those things. We've been set apart to salvation in Christ. Eternal life in Christ. Set apart to light and life in Christ. We've been set apart to Christ's good news kingdom. These are the things that now identify us in this separation that has happened to us as a result of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this has been accomplished in him, our set-apartness that describes us as Christians. But what we can often forget in this idea of being separated from and separated to, this idea of holiness, being set apart, we can often forget is that God, who graciously set apart a people for his own possession, did not set apart his people so they could have nothing to do with those around them. If you know church history, there was an era, I guess you could say, maybe the early 1900s, a fundamentalistic bent among people where they said, we are set apart, we've been separated, 
And what this means is we need to do a full pull-out withdrawal from all society. We need to go into our own little Christian bubble, and we need to circle up the wagons and make sure we have nothing to do with the world, and we need to make sure the world has nothing to do with us. They had the separate set-apartness idea, right? Truly, you are not, like we said last week, in the world, but you are supposed, you're in the world, but you're not supposed to be of the world. To be set apart doesn't mean we circle the wagons and have nothing to do with those around us. As you see throughout Leviticus, Leviticus is giving us God's law. But notice that here in Leviticus 19, God's law is not so that people can do a full pull-out withdrawal from the world. They are to live out everything we've been talking about and looking at and studying and seeking to understand while they are in the world so they have the opportunity to look different, act different, think different. You see, Yahweh's holy people are called to distinguish themselves. And the way we distinguish ourselves is by following God's commands. The world hears the commands of Yahweh and says, I want nothing to do with that. God's people who've been redeemed by him understand that God's commands are not burdensome. They're actually life-giving. And so we walk according to his commands, knowing that life is found in those commands, is what we've talked about for the past two weeks. And as a result, in walking in obedience to Yahweh's commands, our lives will look different. That's what we've been talking about so far through Leviticus. We will distinguish ourselves like in how we think about sin. That was all those sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. We think about sin differently because we are Yahweh's people made holy. We think about how to worship the one true living God differently. That's what we saw in chapters 8 through 10, we think about and how we see our need to have our sin cleansed. That was what all of 11 through 15 were about. We think differently and distinguish ourselves in our ability to, or in our inability to cleanse ourselves of our sin. That was the day of atonement. We can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. That, that's distinguishing among God's people. Or even how last week we saw and our approach to sexuality, parenting, family, etc. When we walk according to God's ways, we will be different. Amen? We'll be different. But remember, the set-apartness, the holiness of Yahweh's holy people was not, emphasis on not, not to be lived out by withdrawing from the world. Remember what we said last week, a holy people will not be of the world, but they will be in the world. And the in the worldness of a set apart people is meant to look like something. And that's where Leviticus 19 comes into play, along with all of the rest of the book of Leviticus. What Yahweh is doing is saying, what he's not saying is this, I'm holy I've redeemed you, you are now holy, and then goes boop and just sort of kicks them out the door and says, I sure hope you guys figure this thing out. 
He's not doing that. He says, no, 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 I am holy. I've redeemed you by grace. I've brought you out of Egypt. Salvation is of the Lord, and you are now recipients of the salvation. And by nature of who I am, I want you to image me to a world around you. You're going into the land of Canaan. There are paganites that are in the land of Canaan. And I want those people to know what it means that they can be redeemed as well. And the way that they're going to see the goodness of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God and the patience of God is when you live like me in a world that does not want anything to do with me. They will be able to see something true about Yahweh when you live like Him. That's holiness, invading practical, everyday life. Think about what we've seen so far. Food that they eat, that's practical, everyday life. Skin disease, healthcare kind of stuff, that's practical, everyday life. Mold and mildew in houses, sexuality, parenting, family life. This is just run-of-the-mill kind of everyday life. And what Yahweh is saying is this. He's building out a worldview, not just so his people can be like, that's awesome, and then run off into the corner and hide. He's building out a worldview so his people can say, if this is what it looks like to distinguish myself as a redeemed man, a redeemed woman, so that my neighbors can see what it looks like to walk in a right relationship with my God, then God, by your help, I'm going to walk in this way. If you can grasp that and you hear nothing else I say this morning, you have grasped the heart of Leviticus 19. This chapter is showing us that the in the worldness of a set-apart people looks like something concrete, tangible, not cloud in the sky, but boots on the ground reality in the way that we eat, sleep, drink, and whatever we do. You see, love, this is what love looks like according to the Scriptures. Love, as the Bible defines it, is not a feeling. Just some squishy emotion that exists out there in the ether somewhere. Love is concrete. Love is grounded. Thus, making the call to be holy as the Lord our God is holy a concrete and grounded command. Holiness and love are connected. Just as our holy God loved his neighbor with tangible action, think about it, Yahweh in the Old Testament, who was one of his nearest neighbors, the people of Israel? He tangibly loved these people by not saying, you know, I've got some really nice sort of squishy feeling towards you guys. No, what did he do? He brought them out of Egypt. He sent the plagues. He split the Red Sea wide open. He brought them to the other side. He provided water in the wilderness, bread in the wilderness. He led them by day. He led them by night. What is this? This is concrete, tangible action of love shown to a people. He's done the same for those of us who are in New Testament believers. That's you and me today. How so? The most tangible, physically expressed Love of God toward those who are sinners is seen right there on the cross. On that Good Friday, 
Christ dying and resurrecting is tangible, it's real, it's earthy. The Son of God cloaked in flesh, walking 30 years, ministering for three, dying for sin, resurrecting unto newness of life so that sinners might have life. What is this? This is tangible action. This is love shown by God to those who don't deserve it. So that as we receive it, we can turn around and not say, well, that's great, and just hoard it and run off, but say, no, 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 I'm going to turn around and now live and show and do the exact same thing. So when saying all of this, how do we tackle Leviticus 19 in front of us? We're going to do it by looking at three points. The first point is this. Holiness looks like imitating God. Holiness looks like imitating God. Look in your Bible. Look there in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people. So notice that this is a little bit different. Typically, the way that these chapters or these major sections in Leviticus start is the Lord spoke to Moses and Moses, you need to go to Aaron and Aaron's going to go to some of the priests and the priests are going to disseminate. This is one of the unique times in Leviticus where it's Lord speaking, the Lord speaking to Moses and saying, you need to gather all the congregation. In the 21st century, John Davis paraphrased, it's the all y'all. All y'all need to hear this. This is for everybody. This isn't just for priests, and this isn't just, just for leaders or the elders of Israel. This isn't just for Moses or just for Aaron. This is for Joe and Susie Israelite. Why? Because you've been redeemed. Just like Aaron's been redeemed, just like Moses has been redeemed, just like any of the priests have been redeemed, you've been redeemed as well. You've been brought out. You are found to be in this people of God. So all y'all need to listen up because you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Verses 1 and 2. See, God is holy. Period. Full stop. His holiness is an intrinsic attribute of who He is. If you want to say, who is God? Uh, describe God for me. One of the premier attributes that you find in the Scriptures is this. God is holy. This means He is perfect in righteousness. Always right. Nothing to do with sin. He's different, he's unique, he's otherly. You can't look and say, you know what, if you look at this, this is just like God. You can't do that. God is unique. You can't say this person is, the, is, is doing exactly what, what God is, what God is like. You know, he's not God, but there's this one over here, you know, he's the God of this religion, whatever. You can't do that because, because he's totally holy. He's set apart. He's separate. Holiness, and when the Bible talks about holiness, this is what makes God the mysterious and glorious being that He is. His holiness is what distinguishes Him from every other, every other being. If you remember in the book of 1 Samuel, you bump into a woman named Hannah, and Hannah was praying for a child. God answered that prayer, gave her a child, Samuel, and she goes to the Lord in prayer, and we have her prayer recorded. In the beginning of her prayer, she taps into the distinguishing holiness of Yahweh when she prayed, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. 
It was also this total otherness of Yahweh which made Moses seeing in Exodus 15 after being delivered and redeemed through the Red Sea. Moses breaks out in a song, and there in verse 11 of the chapter that records his song, Moses comes along and says, Who is like you? He says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God is the absolute standard of perfection, nothing incomplete nor imperfect about him. And it was this majestic holiness which Isaiah saw as the angels sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And it's this holy, holy, holy song that we're going to sing for all eternity when we join the never-ending chorus of heaven singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holiness is intrinsic to our God. If you rob holiness, you don't have God. To have God is to have one who is perfect, holy, otherly. Truly, the resounding refrain in all of Scripture is summarized right here in Leviticus 19, verse 2, when it says, I, the Lord, your God, am holy. This is who I am. But this truth, I, the Lord, your God, am holy, is not a standalone truth that's to be isolated from our daily lives. The danger of a truth, like we find in verse 2, is we all do this. Amen. Agree with that. Good doctrine. Phenomenal theology. And then we take the truth and set it up on the top shelf. And then we want to go run off and do our daily lives void of that truth. We're happy to have the doctrine, but we don't want the doctrine to invade our everyday life. Leviticus 19 is God working a word to his people to say, take the doctrine off the top shelf, let's get it dirty by walking it out in every single day of our lives. God being holy is an absolute truth that is meant to drive our day-to-day choices. Because God is holy, he calls his people to be holy just like him. It's an imitation invitation Because God is holy in every moment of time, because God is holy in all circumstances, he looks to his redeemed people, and he calls us to be holy in every moment of time, and he calls us to be holy in all circumstances, just like him. In short, holiness looks like imitating God in everyday life. This is what the Christian life is about. But we must also understand point number two. That holiness arises from a relationship with God. Holiness arises from a relationship with God. Some of us, because of the way we're wired, hear this. Be holy. As God is holy, he wants me to obey that command. We are phenomenal rule followers, and so we're going to grab that rule. We're going to bootstrap this thing, white knuckle it, and in our own strength, we're going to go out and say, I will be holy no matter what may come. And what we mean by that is, in my own strength, in my own power, I'm going to lean on me, myself, and I to make sure this command gets done. Or we're going to go try to earn this kind of calling. And the scriptures, even Leviticus 19, tell us otherwise. 
You see, I say this, point number two, that holiness arises from a relationship with God because the danger in a chapter like Leviticus 19 where it just says, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, for 37 verses is we will go through and cobble all this together and just say, you know what? We begin to shift and drift into that mindset that these commands, if I can buck up and somehow within myself prove to God that I can do what he wants me to do, this here is the key that will unlock my salvation. This is how I'll be good enough before God. I can say, look at how I obeyed you so well. And hope that my obedience will earn salvation from him. But actually, Leviticus 19 comes at it in the exact opposite way. You see, the natural tendency of our lawish hearts is to think that by our obedience, we can earn a right standing with God, but nothing could be further from the truth. Now, when you read Leviticus 19, there's just no denying in this chapter that we find the call to holiness is linked to obedience. He's calling us to be obedient. Here's what I want you to do. Go and do it. After all, we live out holiness when we obey God's commands. You see this in verses 3 and 4. Just look at your copy of Scripture there. Verses 3 and 4. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. What is that? That is the fifth commandment. You shall keep my Sabbaths. What is that? That's the fourth commandment. Do not turn to idols. What is that? Second commandment. Don't make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. That's a reference to the first commandment. When you see these verses commands with the expectation of obedience. We live out holiness, our set-apartness, when we obey God's commands. Go all the way down to the last verse of the chapter. Verse 37, and you shall, what? Observe all my statutes, observe all my rules, and do them. I am the Lord. So what we can understand from Leviticus 19 is this truth. To be holy means to be set apart, and the set-apartness of God's people is truly shaped by our obedience to God's commands. If someone says, Yahweh is my God, he calls me to be holy as I am holy, but my life is repeatedly, habitually, rhythmically, without remorse, without repentance, a life filled of disobeying his commands, then we've got a gigantic disconnect in our lives. Truly, we live out holiness when we obey God's commands. But what we must not forget, that while this truth is true, sort of think of it like a fraction, this truth that we live out holiness when we obey God's commands, this is like in the numerator, it's in the top part of the fraction, but the foundational, the denominator, the thing that must be there in common in all people's lives, the common denominator of anyone who knows Jesus Christ is the second truth that we live holy lives of obedience because God has first redeemed us. Right? So this isn't a buck up and go do this because you have it within yourself to do it. It's no, because God has redeemed you and saved you and re reconciled you to himself. He showered you with mercy. He showered you with grace. The unmerited favor of Yahweh is yours. You know his patience. You know his kindness. Truly, you are not who you used to be. Now, born out of that reality, we then begin to say, Lord, what does it look like for me to obey? We live holy lives of obedience because God has first redeemed us. We see this in verses like Ephesians chapter 2. 
where Paul tells us that since we've been saved by grace, through faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God. Verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 are talking about peace offerings and these sorts of things. It is possible for these men and women to know peace with God, to have peace with God. Thus, the proper response to grace and peace from God in Ephesians 2 is, Paul says, to walk in the good works God has planned for us. For God's holy people, listen, the two-step march of our lives is grace and obedience. Grace and obedience. That's the two-step march. We're walking through life. Grace, obedience, grace, obedience, grace, obedience. I've been saved by grace. And it's this grace which compels me to obey the one who has saved me. And as I walk in obedience, I recognize, man, I need his grace. And that grace then fuels me to, out of sheer delight at the unmerited favor I've received, to walk in obedience to him. Just as absurd, though, as it would be if someone were to walk in here and say, you know what, I've taken a vow of one-leggedness in the physical world. From now until the day I die, this is how I'm going to go through life. One-legging it. Be like, dude, what, what are you doing? It's like, no, actually, I'm a left-legged one-legger. You know, I'm just going to go through life on the left leg, and I'm just going to make sure I'm going to do it. You look at me like, dude, like you, have, you have two feet. You weren't designed to be a, one, a one-legger. you got two legs. Use two legs. Walk through life in this way. Many of us spiritually are trying to one-leg our Christianity. We're going through life like this. Grace, 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 God's grace. Well, what does that grace look like in real life? I'm not going to obey him. Grace. We put everything on Grace. But grace never fuels us to actually repent of sin and walk in obedience. Some of us, though, the pendulum swings all the way to the other leg. We're trying to obey this thing. Obey, obey, obey. Why are you obeying? Because if I don't, he'll, he'll crush me. I'm trying to earn something from him. I've got to obey him because he's a harsh God, and I don't want to be on the receiving end. So we're just obeying, obey. There's no grace to it at all. You know, No grace fueling obedience. I'm just going to obey this thing. And the scriptures, Leviticus 19, Ephesians 2, everywhere else are saying, no, no, no. The design of redeemed people is grace, obedience, grace, obedience. That's how I'm going to walk through this life until the day Christ comes back or the day I die. Grace fueled obedience. This is the two-step march of our lives. And notice, that's just exactly what you see in Leviticus 19. Well, where do you see it? Look down again at verse 37. Verse 37, yes, what does it say? You shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. But notice that this call to obedience in verse 37 is given by the Lord your God there in verse 36. And who is this Lord? Who is our God? He is the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So what is this language? This brought you up out of the land of Egypt language. What kind of language is that? That is grace language. That's the language of grace. You were enslaved. I redeemed you. You were gone. I brought you near. I'm the one who brought you through the Red Sea. I'm the one who sent the plagues. You now know what it is to be redeemed. I am the Lord your God who redeemed you out of Egypt. Grace, therefore, observe all my rules and do them. Obedience. In other words, the grace-fueled obedience of Ephesians 2 is the same grace-fueled obedience we find in Leviticus 19. It's not like the Old Testament people really had to obey Obey, 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 and hopefully they'll get a little grace in the end. And then the New Testament is just a whole lot of grace, and you know you don't really have to obey. No, grace-fueled obedience 
common denominator, Old Testament, New Testament. And what we must not forget is that through this lens, looking at Leviticus 19, our grace-fueled obedience is what drives our holiness in everyday life. So when we, we're going to look at some of these, we're just going to concentrate on verses 9 through 18. There are a lot more things that could be said from Leviticus 19. We're going to concentrate on verses 9 through 18. And as you begin to hear the do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, for some of us, we're going to hear this, uh, those of us who are like more, more obedience-legged, we're going to hear this, and we're going to sort of start to feel that tension of being crushed by these things. You're like, how in the world am I going to obey this perfectly? No, no, no. You need to remember grace and obedience. For some of us, we're about to read these verses, and you're the, you're the graceites. You love grace, you just love it. Grace covers a multitude of sins, and I love it, but I'm just going to keep on sinning so I can keep getting more grace. And the Apostle Paul says, if that's the boat you're in, you, you, you don't have grace quite right. So we want grace that fuels obedience, obedience that leads me right back to the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So more specifically, what can we say to this? Point number three, and we're just going to look at how grassroots practical holiness is in light of our call to imitate God with grace-fueled obedience in love towards others. What do we see? Holiness. This call to holiness. Be holy. Why? Yahweh is holy. He's my God. I'm to image him. It permeates all aspects of life. The call here, in verses like we're going to look at 9 through 18, the call here is for there to be such integrity of life, such integrity of life that our behavior matches what we are, that it matches who we are. In Christ, we've been made holy, yes? And that holiness is to infiltrate all relationships and all places among all people. It's to infiltrate our homes, our parenting, our friendships, our work, the places we rest, the places that are broken by sin in our city. Holiness is to infiltrate every single corner of our lives. So the question is, what does this practically look like? What does practical holiness look like? According to verses 9 through 18, grace-fueled lives of obedience that walk in holiness are just lives of extreme practicality. Extreme practicality. Lives that reflect the holiness of God through love to others so that those others, those unbelieving world that we find ourselves in, might come to know our God in a redeeming way. Let me give this little caveat here. I don't have, have this in my notes here, but let me give this little caveat. What we're about to read through, there's a danger that we work through it, and you guys are like, uh, yeah, duh. Uh, of course, like, this, this, like, I'm just telling you, there's nothing overly groundbreaking in what we're about to cover in verses 9 through 18. It is just truly the simple realities of what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. But what every single one of us know is while we read these things and we can vigorously nod our head up and down and be like, well, yeah, our lives don't reflect behavior in line with what we say we believe. All of us struggle there, yeah? Anyone else struggle with that? Your behavior doesn't always match your belief? I see, I think John Kleinschmidt's hand in the back. One, one, one honest brother back there, and Mickey. Yeah, he's got two hands. He's standing up. We're about to get charismatic in here, man. He's, 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 getting, he's getting excited. 
So my, my hope is as we look at these things, we're, we're going to touch on them real quick. We're not going to get down into the weeds on them. Is that you are hearing these things and you're just beginning to recognize something that it truly is. Like this call to holiness. I, mean, I just really want you to get this. This call to holiness is just not this thing that lives out in the ether. The call to be holy, it's just, man, it can be so tricky because we want to hear that and go, you know what? Like, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean, like, the way that I do things, don't do things? Does it, does it mean that, like, I just sort of have, like, a different state of mind? Like, it affects my heart and my attitude, but, like, it really doesn't mean anything? Like, practically, what you're going to find out is it means something practically. Like, just literally practical stuff. Okay. So the first way God's people live out holiness through love is by being generous with their possessions. That's the first one. There's five of them there in verses 9 through 18. This is the first one, 9 through 10, generous with possessions. When you reap the harvest of your land, what are you supposed to do? Do not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner. Why? Because I'm the Lord your God. The principle is this, holy living means generously caring for those in need. Like, that's just the principle there. Like, are you generous with your stuff for the good of others? What's the point? Like, this is what holiness looks like. God, you've given me a bunch of stuff. Do you strip the vineyard of your stuff bare? I've got no room in my margin for my budget to be generous. I've got no room or time to be generous with my house or my goods or my food or my drink or my, or my, or my, or my, or my, all the things that God has given me. We can live in such a way where we say, hey, this is the margin of my life. God has given this to me and I'm going to strip this thing bare because it's all for me. Or... The call to holiness says, yes, we realize this is the margin of our life. We realize everything within these margins is God's gift to me, but I'm not going to reap this all the way out to the very edges. I'm going to leave certain margins in my finances, certain margins with my food, certain margins with my time, my energy, my gifts, my talents. Why? So that I can be generous with my possessions. Why? Because this is what holiness looks like practical real world holiness looks like refusing to maximize your standard of living all for you practical holiness is a conscious decision that's to be made where it says i refuse to hold on to everything that belongs to me so i can build in those margins in my life to be free and generous with my stuff towards others practical Holiness looks like generosity with possessions. Number two, look at verses 11 and 12. Second way God's people live out holiness through love is by being honest with your words. Again, man, like this is like, this is ground level. Super simple. But these are all things that are easier said than done, yeah? Look at verse 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. The principle here is plain. When you love, you're to tell the truth in all your interactions. Why should we tell the truth in all of our interactions? Because Yahweh is a truth-telling God. There's nothing false about Yahweh. 
so you guys can make the connection. If I'm to be holy as Yahweh is holy, how is Yahweh holy? Yahweh never lies. Yahweh always tells the truth. And so thus, if I am to be like him, I am to tell the truth in my interactions. Theft, lying, giving false testimony, these are not expressions of holiness. Furthermore, it can put you in a place where if you just think about it, like I right, just tease this out, if you go about stealing stuff from people, you're lying about, about possession. You're saying, that thing really ought to belong to me. No, it doesn't. That's, that's a lie. If you're going to then lie with your words, you're giving false testimony about something. So think about people maybe you know, maybe yourself, stole something, you lied about it, you gave false testimony about it, and you found yourself profaning the name of the Lord your God. Well, how does this work? Well, it can put you in a place where you go about lying, giving false testimony, stealing things. You profane God's name when you falsely swear by his name. Right? So say you've stolen something and someone calls you out on it. Or maybe you've called someone else out on it. So they stole it. They got caught. Hey, is that yours? No, you know, I got caught. And then, or Maybe you've seen this with your children. What do they say in those moments when they got caught? I swear to God, it wasn't me. So now what are they doing? They're taking God's name in a profane way, swearing upon the God who's truth-telling as they're lying through their teeth, giving false testimony that it wasn't me. So it's just things like this, right? Not, Not only... Is someone in this situation dealing falsely by lying, but now they're taking God's holy name and trampling it in the dust to try to make themselves look other than they are. In the real world, right, this can mean a million things. In our work, we can steal time from our employer. We can deal falsely by claiming to have accomplished tasks not finished. Davis, did you get that done? Yeah, I got it done, knowing in the back of your mind you only did like nine-tenths of what was asked of you. But that one-tenth is never going to be found out. But what are you doing? You're, you're giving false witness there. You're lying. You're going to get a paycheck for doing 10 out of 10 things, but you only did 9 out of 10 things. Now you're stealing from your employer. Right? We can, lie about, we can lie about a spouse. We can lie to our spouse. We can lie to our children, lie to our friends, lie to our coworkers. We can even look in the mirror and lie to ourselves. Thus the call for holiness to so invade our words that we speak with honesty like the honest God that we worship, all right? Number three, the third way God's people live out holiness through love is by being honorable in our actions. That's verses 13 and 14, honorable in our actions. Look at what it says there, starting in verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. What's a way that you can rob your neighbor? Well, by not giving him His wage, the wages of a hired worker, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf. This is a way that you can be dishonorable in your actions. Curse the deaf. Put a stumbling block before the blind. But notice the warning here that that stands out among all these verses. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So what's the principle here with point number three about being honorable in our actions? It's this. Don't take advantage of the weak. There's always going to be weak. There's always going to be poor around us. The temptation for anybody with an iota of power over someone who's weak is to totally leverage that power to take advantage of the person that can't do anything about it. 
So don't take advantage of the weak. Instead, help the weak. Don't oppress your neighbor. Instead, if you find yourself in a position of power, actually leverage your influence and care for them, not in harm for them. Super simple, practical stuff but the stuff that our world is made of, right? How many times in any sphere of any influence where you see people in power, they get a taste of that power and it absolutely corrupts them. It leads them to say, there are those below me because of this gift of position and power and influence that I have, and they use that power and that influence and that position to benefit themselves to the detriment of those who they know can't do anything about it. So don't do this, says Yahweh. Now, why is the temptation for those in positions of power to take advantage of the weak? It's because I think it's just not always obvious that they're going to get caught. That's why people do this. They're deluded. Just think about it. If you go and you curse the deaf this afternoon, say you go to, I don't know, Olive Garden or something, someone who walks in and you can just tell they can't hear, they're deaf, and you come up behind them and you begin to curse them with their words, why are you doing this? The idea is like, well, how in the world are they going to hear? They're deaf. They're weak. I'm strong. I can abuse them in this way. And how in the world are they ever going to find out? If you see someone who's blind walking down the sidewalk and you walk up and go, boop, whoosh, face plant, you can go running away. What's to stop you? They ain't going to find out. They can't tell who it was. They're blind. What you're doing in those moments is you're making a conscious decision to use your influence, your position, your power to the detriment and harm of someone else. But even, I think, if the strong, those in positions of influence do get caught, they're so deluded by it, if they're not seeking to submit this position of power and influence to the Lord, they're so caught up in deception to where even if they do get caught in doing this, what is their response? The weak are weak, and there ain't nothing they're going to be able to do about it. After all, I am, fill in the blank. I have this position, fill in the blank. I have this power, I have this influence. Do you know who I am? You can't do anything about the wrongs that I'm doing. Have you guys ever seen that mentality you splashed across the news? Yeah? Leviticus 19, 13, and 14 help us with this. Remember the warning there at the end? Don't put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. Why is this here and not among some of the other practical calls to holiness? I think it's this. While the deaf and blind may be weak, what we must remember is there is one who hears and sees at all times. His name is Yahweh. So while the deaf person might be unable to hear you, guess who is hearing you? Manipulate your influence for ill, Yahweh. While the blind may not be able to see it, while the accountant in the corner is finagling the books, while the man in the position of power is sexually abusing, while the, while the, while the, while the, ain't nobody going to get me. Look at my position, my power. Yahweh is up there, eyes fully wide open, and he's recording it, and he's seeing it, and he's hearing it. And the call is to fear God. God knows the deception of our hearts that when men or women get influence, power, or position, they can wield this for harm. They can use it for satanic purposes. And Yahweh says, wield this in fear of me. I see, I know, walk in a way where you dare to treat me as the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing God that I am. 
when you lift your head up off the pillow tomorrow morning and start another work week? How do you do it? You do it like this. I'm going to fear God. I'm going to dare to take God and trust God and live like God is God. Fourth way, God's people live out holiness through love is by being impartial with judgments. That's verses 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor, defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the light of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So with these verses, the principle just comes down to this. You're to be fair with your neighbors. Truly be fair. God's holy people are to do no injustice. In particular, they're to show no partiality, whether poor or to the great. Why do you think he says that? Don't show partiality to the, to the great, to the rich. We can understand how you might want to show partiality to someone's rich, but why does it say don't show partiality even to the poor? I think the great temptation in any situation where we must make a judgment call, a decision is to be made, this moment of decision, this moment of a judgment call being made can be influenced by the rich and powerful, or they can be influenced by a desire to show special favor to those who are disadvantaged. We, in certain scenarios, we want the rich man to keep doing his rich man's stuff. They got a lot of money, and I want their money for my thing, and so I'm going to show partiality so the rich man will keep doing what rich men do to the detriment to others. And he says, that is not the way we walk in holiness. That's partiality in your judgment. Or maybe you find yourself in a place where the poor, the weak, are truly being oppressed. Something is happening to them that is an opposition to God. And you are in a position and a place to make that right. And so out of just extreme, maybe genuine compassion or whatever, but what you do is you finagle the facts around so that you can really stick it to the rich man, the great man, to the benefit of the poor. We feel sorry for the poor. And so we rule in such a way to really stick it to their oppressor. In either scenario, there's a failure to judge your neighbors in righteousness. That's the call there. God is right. He calls us to live rightly in line with him. And so when we judge with partiality, we're actually acting in ways that are opposed to God. Lastly, verses 17 and 18. God's people live out holiness through love by love for others. Believe it or not. <laughs> You live out holiness through love by loving others, not hating them. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You ever find yourself in a scenario, I mean, it's classic little kid syndrome, right? I love you, sibling, but on the inside, you know they're just murdering that sibling, right? <laughs> oh, seething hatred in the heart, but on the outside, they're like, okay, daddy, I love him. I'm sorry that I hit him. It's like, I hear the words coming out your face, man. But the attitude of your heart is one of hating your brother. Okay? Not saying that my kids have ever done this. Okay? And that's there as a lie. So I need to even repent before you on that one. What do you do? Reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take a vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The principle is there at the end of verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. What this shows us is that God intends for his people to love. Have you ever thought about like why love in a big, giant, 
chapter full of do thises and don't do thises. Love, twice, buried in there. I think it comes down to this. What this shows us, this command to love, is that God intends for his people to love. This isn't just merely a call to follow moralistic rules, but it's a call to actually love people. And that's the division I was telling us and warning us against, right? You can read a chapter like this and come away going, man, I need to buck up, bootstrap, white-knuckle this thing so I can start obeying better. And God is actually saying, no, 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 what I want you to do is see this through the lens of loving other people. That's the aim of laws like we find in Leviticus 19. Now, what I want you to do is fast forward in your mind with me. Fast forward to the New Testament, thinking of this law, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And what we find when we fast forward into the New Testament is that Jesus took this command to love your neighbor as yourself, and he prioritized this very command to love over every other command. We just read it earlier in our, in our liturgy, how Paul summarized all of it with the royal law, what James calls, what's the royal law? The royal law of love. Love of God, love of neighbor. If you remember, somebody asked Jesus, Jesus, out of all of the commandments, out of all the Leviticus 19s that exist, the, the do this is and don't do that, can you summarize it for me, Jesus? Which is the most important? Jesus answered, here's the most important one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Here's the second summary of all the commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is pulling Leviticus 19.18 forward and saying, if you want to summarize the whole enchilada, it looks like love. Love for God and that love for God on the vertical spreading out in love for others, love for neighbor on the horizontal. In what ways? Extremely practical ways. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love God and love people. This is how we show holiness in our daily lives. We love God because he first loved us. We love our neighbor with practical, concrete action. But what happens, friends? What happens when we find it hard to love your neighbor as yourself? Not rhetorical question. All right, I'm going to preface it this right here. How many of us find it hard to love neighbor as self? Show of hands. Yeah. This falls into the category of easy for Pastor John to preach, hard for Pastor John to live. And I'm just assuming you find yourself in the same place. Love neighbor as self. Remember, when we're talking about love, it's not love as a feeling, but love as obedience to God's command. So just think about this in the realm of marriage. What happens when we find it hard to love our spouse, but easy to show them hatred? What happens when we find it easy to be hurtful with our words to our husband, or dishonorable in our actions to our wife, or harsh with our judgments to the one to whom we said, I do, or even move this beyond the realm of marriage? What about in the realm of parenting, or the realm of work, or the realm of relationships, or the realm of friendships? What if our love runs dry? The desire to love neighbor as self. We can just say, like, man, like it's an extremely low ebb. Like, there's, like when you, if you're going to ask me, like, do you desire this? And if you're honest, with the man, the woman in the mirror, and you say, I don't, I don't know that I really want to love my neighbor as myself. I know what Yahweh commands me to do, but I don't desire to do it. The question is, 
when we are marked more by unholy lives of non-love to others, question, where do we get the power to obey Yahweh's command to love? Where do we get that power from? Well, I can tell you this, we don't get it from ourselves. If you're walking out of here going, Pastor John wants us to reach down really deep within ourselves and just really strive to obey, you're not hearing what I'm saying. Instead, what we recognize is this. We get the power to obey by this. Looking, remembering. Looking, remembering. Looking, remembering. We get the power by first looking to Jesus, who is our standard of holy living. Jesus, how did you live like this? How did you speak like this? What did you reveal in the scriptures? It's the Hebrews 12 command. Look to Jesus, author, perfecter of your faith. Behold him. Ask, Lord, will you help me to live like you in this moment? You look to him recognizing I don't have it within me. You exhibited this perfectly in your life. I'm asking you, Jesus, by looking to you with the eyes of faith, saying I need you to help me to even want to love my neighbor as myself. And for those of us who can even say, yeah, I have an inkling, I have a desire to love my neighbor as myself, but like I don't always walk in obedience to what I even desire, you still are called to look. Look to Jesus. Ask Jesus, will you help me to do this? You look to Jesus. Secondly, what do we do? We get power by remembering a verse like Romans 5, 5 that says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. Listen, your ability to love others in obedience to God's command is available to you not by reason of your own strength, but it is available to you through the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Amen? Your God has poured His holy love into your heart, and that is where you get the strength to live a holy life of love to, of love to others. So you wake up tomorrow morning, Love neighbor as self. That's what practical holiness looks like. God has called me to this. And what can we pray? We can pray like Augustine who prayed, thank God, praise God, that God not only commands what he wills, but praise God that he then graciously gives what he commands. God commands by his sovereign will, be holy as I am holy. And this looks like love to your neighbor. God, you have every right in the world to command that. You have the right to command what you will, but praise God that he then turns around and graciously gives what he commands, the power to walk in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit who turns our eyes to look to Jesus so that as we collapse upon Jesus, we can actually go out into a world that needs to see a bunch of holy Christians walking around, distinguished from the world around them so that the world around them can see a picture of Jesus, repent, and believe. Yeah? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you. And my desire now is that just the Spirit would come and connect dots for us. I've got no doubt that we find ourselves all over the spectrum of just what we heard this morning as it relates to where we are. Some of us need to be, be saved, like truly declared holy and right with God by first trusting in the Lord Jesus for salvation. Lord, would you do that work? Some of us can say, that is true of me, 
but we're just all over the map as it relates to grace-fueled obedience, practical holy living. So God, would you do something in your kindness? Would you just reveal one area of growth in our life even now? Just reveal one area of growth. Out of all that could possibly be, reveal one area of growth, and then by your grace, grant the power to begin to walk in such a way where we obey, repent, look to Jesus, rinse and repeat. God, do this so that the world around us would see Christ in us and then come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. God, help us to be bold in our set-apartness. Help us to be humble because our set-apartness is by grace through faith in Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.